I have a number of scriptures this morning, so if you're trying to follow along, just stay in Malachi 3, and you'll be fine. The rest will be on the screen. Malachi 3, 6, and 7. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? As you look at this, God's promise to an unfaithful people is remarkable. Simple, but remarkable. Return to me, and I will return to you. And that's a pretty good promise. But it's interesting that their question, and it's, it's going to get more interesting here in a moment, but their question is, how do we return? How are we to return? And that's a good question. How does a person return to God? And I think hidden in all this already, and not very well hidden, it's there if you're looking for it, are two important things about how we return to God. One, seek Him. That's step one. Seek God. Jeremiah 29, 13, and we should remember Jeremiah is uh, the one who lived through the beginning of his exile and pointed to the end, so we're going to hear from him a couple times. Jeremiah, speaking the word of the Lord in verse uh, 29, verse 13, says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And there, both here and in our text in Malachi, we can actually see the other crucial component to if we are going to return to God. It's not just that we seek Him. We have to have the desire to find Him. We want to, we want to get to the goal. And, and I'm reminded as I was thinking about this this week of sometimes this can afflict us when we've uh, said yes to Jesus, but we don't really work hard at it. But, but where I see this more often in a cultural context, um, and I say this observationally, uh, is my observation of those that are agnostic that I've known through my life or had encounters with in my life. There's a, there's a lip service given to seeking to know, but not actually a desire to find. That's my experience anyways. There's a, there's a lip service given to, I want to find out the answer, but not actually desire to get to the end goal because whether a lot of, a lot of agnostics realize it or not, they often live a very convenient life. They can be angry about injustice and things that are wrong, never, of course, defining why they're wrong, but then they can also kind of have a personal morality that they can live out however they want to. It's very convenient. And woe to us, by the way, if we follow Christ and never live into that. We shouldn't. God's given us much more. The promise is return to me and I'll return to you. Seek God, but then have the desire to find him. That's the key. But you can see the problem again. We've seen it all through Malachi. It just keeps coming up almost verse after verse, the problems that they encounter, that throughout history, God has repeatedly offered his best, repeatedly offered himself to his people. And all throughout history, Israel has treated it all too often with indifference at best and as bad at worst. What God offers, which is good, they call bad. We saw some of that last week. The ancestors that are referenced here, 
did not obey God, His law. They worshipped other gods. And we won't go into detail there, but when, when in the ancient world people are worshipping other gods, we should recognize that's code for a whole lot of immorality that comes with that. They broke the covenant that God made with them over and over. And God gives them this promise, return to me and I'll return to you. I'm waiting. All you need to do is seek and have the desire to find me. Moving forward uh, with, with what we're seeing here and where we're going to go, uh, uh, biblical scholar Walter Elwell, I think, sums up this and propels us forward here. He says, God remains faithful to his promise that he will return to those who seek him with all their heart. Israel's history is the story of a lack of responsiveness to God and his commandments. Even after the exile, they were slow to respond. They were satisfied with their lack of commitment. The prophetic countercharge is quick. Malachi singles out one example of infidelity to God, the tithe. And we'll see that in just a moment. But the translation of what's being said here, we put it in really simple terms, is we humans are too easily satisfied. God's offering us so much in this offer of coming to him and returning to him and his invitation, and yet we are satisfied with so little of his promises, not to see the fullness of what he offers. And so the bottom line of what we see in the people of Malachi here, people of Judah, is that the returning exiles did not value what God had given them. A return to the covenant a return to the covenant promises, certainly the land to live it out in freedom and safety, but this blessing that he had given them that was supposed to go through them to the rest of the world, they didn't see it that way. They didn't value it. And the other thing about it is uh, they were not at all reflective on their own sinfulness, certainly not on the sins of the past and how they affected them, but certainly not on their present sinfulness either. And when we don't value what God has given and we're unreflective on our own sin and how it has separated us from God, we may, we may say that we seek God, but we actually lack the desire to find him. And that's where they find themselves. Let's continue on in Malachi. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. So, and, and here's a, this is one of those reminders that when we ask God a question, the answer we get might not be what we expect. So they said, how are we to return to God? And let's look at verse 8. What's his answer? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? Hello. That's a big answer to their question. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. They're robbing God. And if you actually look deeper at this, 
It's not just stuff. All of the stuff that's going wrong in Judah is relational. And it's due to the cultural rot that they've experienced. We saw a couple weeks ago, Malachi 2, verses 10 through 11, uh, the example used there of failing relationships were divorce. And specifically that the Levites, among others in the culture, the male Levites, were flippantly treating their vows and dismissing their wives who they had vowed to take care of with disregard. God says, that's not what I intended at all. And if you're doing that with them, you're doing that with me as well. So stop it. The vows mean something. Take care of the wife of your youth. Then we see today, tithing is not all that's gone wrong, but that's the specific example of where they're unfaithful to God. And it is actually relational. So what I want to do is I want to look at uh, three Old Testament passages and not take along with them to look at some principles of generosity and giving that we've seen in the Old Testament. And I'll make some commentary about tithing and today, and then we'll move forward with what that means as we go forward. But we'll see things that, that relate to us in those principles, I believe. And we've seen, by the way, that the tithing is, is that they're giving second, second best, leftovers, all kinds of things are going wrong. But the tithing specifically uh, is what's, what's used as an example. And the tithe in the Old Testament, literally the word means tenth or a tenth portion. And I want us to put ourselves in the, the mindset of the Old Testament for a moment and the mindset of, of the world of Malachi to hear these words. When we speak of giving and generosity quite often in, uh, in our day and age and in our wing of the church, we'll often do the three T's, time, talent, and treasure. And those are all legitimate ways to give to the Lord, and we should, all three. But I want for our purposes right now, sometimes we'll use time and talent to substitute for treasure when we're talking as well. So let's just cross those two out right now. They're valid, they're legitimate, but they're not what we're talking about right now. That's not what, what's the problem here. It's the treasure part that's being talked about here. So let's put ourselves there. And if we, if we sort of modernize what it is that, that that would be for us, the treasure, it's the stuff in your bank account, in your wallet, it's your money, basically. Uh, it's the stuff in your cupboard, it's the stuff in your pantry, your fridge, and your valuables. That's what they're talking about. It's not your ability to play piano or be really nice to people. That's not it. So, Leviticus 27.30. Let's start there. And I'll read each of these passages and then we'll make a, a quick point about it. Leviticus 27.30, about the tithe. It says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain or from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, they were given this instruction um, as they're going to enter the promised land. And this is how they're supposed to treat it, that a tenth of whatever they gather is supposed to go to the Lord. And the principle we can gather here is that everything good that you and I have is from God. I say that not because he only talks about a tenth here, but we can apply to this a couple other passages of Scripture, one from the old, one from the new, to recognize this. Psalm 24, 1, for instance, says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, or the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to God anyways. And when they're coming into the land, the, the giving the tenth recognizes, yes, this is in fact God, and he's been good to us to give us this goodness and this bounty. The other one we can recognize is James 1.17 that uh, talks about every good and perfect gift comes from above. That is, anything that we could call good is actually of God in source. So it all belongs to him. Everything good you and I have belongs to God. Second verse that we can look at, 
is Numbers 18.24. It says, Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. That is why I said concerning them, they will have no inheritance among the Israelites. When they went into the promised land, the 11 tribes got an allotment of land with which to give that tithe and with which to survive and, and, and uh, farm and live. The Levites and the priests and the, the Aaron, Aaron's tribe, basically, was not given an allotment. They were supposed to hang out in Jerusalem, but they also had a couple other places they could be. Uh, but they didn't get an inheritance in the same way. They had a different role within the life of Israel. And the tithe was intended, among other things, to support the life of Israel and their relationship with God by providing for the Levites and priests. Because it's the Levites and priests who administered the rites at the tabernacle at this point and the temple eventually. And so by bringing the tithes in, you're allowing that to continue to go on. So it's not simply that you're allowing Levites and priests to survive, it's that you're supporting the system by which you can come and give offerings of thanks and offerings of atonement and feasts so that you can be right with God. That's what the tithe is going towards. But, and if you were to read on in Numbers 18, you can see that even the Levites and the priests were supposed to tithe on their tithe because they're still recognizing God is the giver of all of this. So tithing, when it comes down to it, is about right relationship with God. That's really what's behind that. It's not just giving stuff away. It's that we would have the mechanisms to be right with God. It's not that you give to get. It's that you give, and in, in doing that, you're supporting the structure that allows us to move forward. In the Old Testament, that's what was happening. But I believe it's still the same. It, it reveals something about our heart when we give. Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. Then if we go to the third passages, at the end of every three years, it says, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. We can read, and this, this is where the whole idea of Old Testament tithing actually gets pretty complicated if you look into it. This passage, and there's at least one other, where all of a sudden you realize that the math doesn't quite work out to a tenth like we think. Um, in fact, in certain years, the tithe could be as much as 20 or 30 percent of the bounty of the land that's being given, much more than the tithe, giving of crops and such. It was also to be used for those who were economically destitute, those who were without, those who were uh, foreigners, those who were far from their own homes, to make sure that everybody was taken care of. That was the social safety net. That's what they did. And so tithing doesn't just do something when it comes to this relationship and revealing something about our heart and our recognition of whose stuff this is. Tithing is also important for these relationships, human-to-human -human relationships as well, because those are valued by God. And they're, they're valued particularly, and we're supposed to do that, at least the, the Old Testament precedent is set up that way. And you can find this throughout because God says, once you were foreigners in a foreign land and I rescued you, you were to be like me, my covenant people. Now, all that propels us forward. To, we can see the generosity principles behind that. And maybe they work out a little different in our own day. Again, we're not giving so we get. That, that would be the wrong uh, idea. But do we need to tithe today? This is one of those that, that comes up regularly. And if you were to Google that, don't do it now. But if you were to Google that, 
buckle your seatbelt, okay? It's all over the map. And then if you read the comments on anybody's post anywhere online, really buckle to put another seatbelt on because it's all over the map what people think about this. Let me give you my biblical understanding as we move forward to understand what we're seeing here and, and bring it back into context here. Do we need to tithe today? As I said, Deuteronomy 14, which we just read, uh, the math doesn't quite work out to 10%. Uh, it works out to more like 20 or 30%, depending on how you cut it. And uh, New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner, in an article on, on this very uh, concept of tithing, he points out if somebody really needed to land on a number like 10%, uh, you wouldn't land on 10% if you were going to make a biblical precedent from the Old Testament. You really would land closer to 20% as what you should be giving if you were to pay, take the Old Testament principle. He argues against that, and I would argue the same thing, and here's why. I would say that Jesus assumed tithing when he talked to people, but now after the resurrection, something different has occurred in those who follow Jesus. Something different has occurred in how we are to give in following Jesus. Romans 12.1, for instance, says... Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Jesus didn't give 10%. Jesus gave himself. And he calls us to do the same. Now, that doesn't mean empty your bank account. That just means that we have a different attitude about our generosity and giving. Second verse I want to bring in from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And we're going to hit this verse again in a few weeks, so we won't stay there long. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we can see if we put together Romans 12, 1 and 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that there's an attitude that's behind our giving and generosity, not a number that's behind it. And then 1 Corinthians 16, 2. This is about giving to the churches that were going through famine. Paul writes, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. I don't believe that we have to prescriptively do it exactly that way, but what he's saying is we need to be generous in giving to those within the body of believers as well, and we need to, to do that with regularity. There needs to be some generosity that, that moves forward. And the bigger picture of all of this is the issue of trust and generosity that stand behind our giving. Those are the two keys behind it. You see, a generous person knows the proper value of things. A generous person knows the proper value of what God has given us that is good and what God has called us to do. And they give based on that. And their generosity is based on that attitude. And I find it interesting that if we look back at the text and we, look, and we consider the issue of trust first before we consider the issue of generosity, Trust is built into this, and it's actually built into it in a couple ways, but the, the name of God that's used here is what I found really intriguing in this that sits behind the text. When I usually think of giving and generosity and the way that God takes care of us as we give, I usually think of the, the descriptive title of God, Jehovah Jireh, provider. And in fact, that's a good way to think about it. Jehovah Jireh, that God is our provider. God will provide what I need. And so as I give, God's going to provide what I need and I can trust that. We should recognize there's a difference between, between wants and needs, by the way, in understanding that. God's going to give what is needed. But that's not the term used here. That's not the descriptive title of God or name of God used here. 
It's already happened in the text. There's a couple different names of God used in Malachi. Jehovah Jireh is never one of them. The one that's used here is mine has Lord Almighty. Um, I don't think that quite gets there. Lord of hosts, some of your translations have, or Lord of armies, other translations have. That's closer. It's the God who can do whatever he sets his mind to, who commands the angel armies that can do his bidding, and what he says he will do, he will do and has all power to do it. That's the title, descriptive title of God that's given here. And if we put that to the issue of trust and then eventually generosity, we recognize that God has a direction for this world that he's created, for you and me and everything in it. God put it together, and history isn't running in a circle. It's running in a line towards where God is taking us. And the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, we recognize that history has an end. It's God's end in mind. And I can trust that if I rely on Him, I will join that story, the story that God has for all of creation and has all power to do as He wills. That's the story I'm joining. And if I understand the world that way, then the stuff that I have is just stuff for the journey and to accomplish that goal. That's a different understanding of giving, I think, that's built into this. And you can see how that kind of idea was lived out by a small group of people, but not the majority. Right, The masses in Judah did not trust God, thus they did not give. Or when they gave, they gave leftovers to God. But God always preserved a remnant. A group of people who always trusted. And always understood that that's what he was on about, was taking us to an end. And a glorious end. You can see before the covenant with Abraham, Noah is a good example of what a remnant looks like. But you can also see that, that within that covenant, uh, Joseph in Egypt is a good example of a remnant. And even here, there are people who are faithful behind there. That's why God can send his prophet to speak and people will actually respond appropriately. Again, from Jeremiah 23, this is looking ahead to the end of the exile. Jeremiah 23, 3, it's the word of the Lord. It says, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. The remnant, those faithful few, it was not always easy to be the remnant among the masses. But the remnant had the desire to seek and find the Lord even amidst widespread unfaithfulness. And if we trust God's plans and power, we can be persistent in faithfulness even in difficult times. They trusted. That's why they were robbing God, as the people, the masses didn't trust, but there was always a remnant that did. The other piece of that that we can look at is that a generous person knowing, knowing the proper value of things is the issue of generosity itself. And this is why we can say tithing is a, a useful mark. But it's not the end goal in the Christian life. I think it's a really useful target, actually. But it's not the end goal. Tithing is simply a component of generosity. So if we, could, we can take an example here to consider. If you have a person who can give a very small portion of what they have, 
because they don't have a lot to give. One, two, three percent. But they have a heart of service and they, they, they work at generosity and they do give something, time, talent, treasure, all of that. Whatever they can give and they always wish to be doing more for God's kingdom work. Compare that to somebody who could give more than 10% as a number, but gives 10% and stops there because that's all God asked of me. Who's generous? And I think we understand the principle if we say that, if we, if we look into it that way. Tithing, giving, generosity, they occur because we seek God and desire to find Him. And our attitude reflects that in all ways, including our giving. And the one who seeks God wholeheartedly, who sets their mind on Jesus Christ and His kingdom, who has God's Holy Spirit at work in them, is not going to be satisfied with a number. No, they're, they're going to be seeking to be generous, to trust God no matter the circumstances, to do right by His way and to be loving in money, food, goods, and to, to others because they know the true value of God and His world. 